Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, Patton Oswalt checks into the show. I voted for Obama in 2008. I voted for him in 2012. I was very, very happy. Well, that's, thank you, but that's the least risky thing I can say in San Francisco in front of a bunch of my fans. I don't care if you can leave right now. I voted for Obama twice. Yeah, you heard me. But I voted for him and I was really happy, but I also understand why people voted for Bush twice and I get what they must have gone through. Not, I'm not saying that Obama's as bad a president as Bush. I'm just saying anyone you vote for into the White House will eventually, during their presidency, do something that will make you, as a supporter, go, And that was stand-up comedian, actor, author, and screenwriter Patton Oswalt ranting back then about that, well, same U.S. president, different day downer. And Oswalt known for, among many others, King of Queens, Seinfeld, Two and a Half Men, Zoolander, and Blade Trinity, is our guest this week on the show to talk about his latest just-released satire, I Love My Dad. The problem is that his adult son doesn't like him at all because he's a notorious scammer and a disappointment. So Oswald comes up with a scheme to romance his son online as a pretend female admirer, and that's where his kooky and kinky girlfriend, Rachel Dratch, as The Voice, comes in. We'll hear from Patton Oswald about all of that and more, including cancel culture in the comedy world, and pressure to distance himself from his lifelong friend, Dave Chappelle. But first, a little more about those questionable presidents, apparently all of them. I voted for Obama in 2008. I voted for him in 2012. I was very, very happy. Well, that's, thank you, but that's the least risky thing I can say in San Francisco in front of a bunch of my fans. I don't care if you can leave right now. I voted for Obama twice. Yeah, you heard me. But I voted for him and I was really happy, but I also understand why people voted for Bush twice and I get what they must have gone through. Not, I'm not saying that Obama's as bad a president as Bush. I'm just saying anyone you vote for into the White House will eventually, during their presidency, do something that will make you, as a supporter, go, <laughs> Like Bush comes, oh, people, supporters are so happy. This is my guy. Yes, Bible, Bible, Bible. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's my guy. And halfway through his presidency, oh, we're torturing people. And that's kind of biblical. So when Obama came along, oh, I was so happy. Yes, Obama, science, science, science. Logic, logic, here we go, that's my guy. And halfway through his presidency, we're killing people with flying robots. <laughs> that's kind of science-y, I guess. In a, in a Terminator kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I want a woman president, I want a gay president, all right? But just know that, okay, hang on. I don't wanna be one of those guys 
It's like, hey man, you know, there, there's people that actually are behind the president that run the country, man. But there are people behind the president that actually run the country. And it seems, especially ever since Clinton, doesn't it feel like they've been casting the presidency to deliver something awful as a giant sugar, like, with Clinton, it was, oh, we've got this NAFTA thing, and it's over the American workers, and it destroys the manufacturing base. How are we going to sell this? Well, okay, here's what we do. We get a fun, kind of southern Elvisy dude, and he likes cheeseburgers, and people are like, oh, that's kind of cool. And it worked. It worked. But then, oh, now we got this torture pro. Oh, my God, this torture program's a nightmare. How in the hell are we going to sell this? Oh, well. I know, we get a fun, bumbling cowboy. And he can't really talk, and he walks into doors. And he's fun, and people will like that. And they're like, we'll get that through, nice. I don't know how else to put this, F flying assassin droids. We have flying assassin droids. Cool black guy, there's, I don't know another way. I, I just, that's the first thing I thought, cool black guy, there's no other way. So look, again, I want a woman president. I want a gay president. I'm just letting you know, when, when we get those, there will be something horrible attached to them. <laughs> By the time we get to gay president, that means we've got Soylent Green. That means we are putting people in a giant mulcher and just making energy bars out of them. We gotta, we gotta start eating people to survive. Well, get the funny gay guy out there. Just, Who's hungry? Like, guys, oh, he's, he's funny. I like him. That's cool. He's good. I like that guy. Oh, Grandma was annoying anyway. Stop it. <laughs> we do need a woman president, though. Oh, my. I, I know that for a fact because of the way that I love movies. I love movies. And every, any movie that you love, chances are it was directed by a man edited by a woman, which means a woman directed it. That's what that means. Literally, name a movie. I'm serious. Star Wars, Pulp Fiction, Jaws, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, Lawrence of Arabia. Because that's how, look, those are the two. It's a dude with his camera just pointing it everywhere. Just, oh, I'm just shooting film. Oh my God, just 18 miles of it. Look at this, every frame is a painting. Oh my God, I'm making the masterpiece. Oh, I'm done. Yeah. Oh, I shot a lot of film. Oh man. You see all that film I shot? Holy, shot film everywhere, man. Oh, I'm a genius. I'm a genius. It's all me. I did it myself. Woo! And the woman's got to show up. We all done, sweetie? Okay. Out you go. I got to make a story out of this mess. No, we're not going to we're not going to release an 18-hour movie, sweetie. No. No. Go have a sandwich. Thank you. I got to find the story here. Oh no, but you helped. Oh, super job. Thank you. Good job. Out you go. And now here's Patton Oswalt following some scenes from I Love My Dad, an actual true story based on writer, director, and co-star James Morosini's own life. Anyone else have anything they want to say? Franklin? I uh, took some steps in setting healthy boundaries and blocked my dad online. He's never really been there for me when I needed him, and I'm done with that. Did you delete your profile? It's kind of the main way I was uh, staying in touch with you. My ex blocked me one time, and I just started a different page under a different name. I'll check it all the time. She never even knew. <laughs> I just started a different page under a different name. I met someone online. She's like smart, funny. And you've like talked to her on the phone and stuff? Obviously. <laughs> Soup. So, how's it? So, how's it going? Good. 
This was creepy as This was your idea. That was my ex-girlfriend. This is your child. Would you be up for a quick phone call? Uh, it's just a little weird that we've never actually talked. Could you call him and be the voice? What are you wearing? Sweatpants and a Red Sox shirt. What about you? Just a dress. No panties. This is incest. No, it's not. I'm doing this to help him. He thinks he's in a relationship. This girl's the love of my life. Keep your expectations low. She could be, like, mean or, or a scammer or, I mean, or your dad. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hi, it's my girlfriend. One, one sec. Yeah. Becca, hello? Hey, Becca? Hello, hello. I'll call you in a little bit. I'll call you. Not there, huh? Can I pretend to kiss you? Look, <laughs> you ask for my help. Internet kiss your son. That's gross. Do you love him? Yes. Just kiss him already. <laughs> oh, hi, Prairie. Well, hello, and welcome to our show. Hey, how are you? Terrible. It's so hot here. <laughs> are you in L.A.? I'm in L.A. We have... We have the blast furnace heat. I was in New York yesterday. Oh. You have the steam bath. Heat. Oh yeah. You have the you have that kind of heat like you take a shower and then you go outside for a minute and you need another shower. Ah, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, I've got some questions for you. <laughs> Great. What got you interested in playing this bad dad Chuck in the movie? I re I, I just love the script. I love the fact that James um took a risk when i read the script it, it had that feeling of this will either work like gangbusters or be a disaster and those are the kind of movies i love and he was such a difficult but fleshed out and human character that i it just was something i really wanted instantly was intrigued by and wanted to do and did you draw anything from your own life as a father to play this character not necessarily as a father i i can't imagine like not wanting to be with your kid that is that is a very alien concept for me so i really couldn't make that leap but i could definitely make the connection and i've done this many times in my life when you do the classic but i i want to do the right thing doesn't that don't i get credit for that i mean <laughs> i'm not necessarily going to follow up on it or do it but don't i get credit for it? like that that wanting all the privileges and none of the responsibilities i think is something we've all been guilty of and i just tried to Imagine amplifying it to almost a, 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 you know, metastasized level. And did you get to meet with James Morsini's father that you portray with any input from him to you? No, not before shooting or during shooting. Afterwards, we did a, uh, I did a long interview with James for the New York Times that his father was also part of. So getting to talk to his father and meet him was fascinating. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I, I wanted it to be, I didn't want to have, whoever he was kind of coloring what I was doing. I, 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 got, I, was, I realized I've got to approach this in whatever way I can make it work for me, and then I can meet him afterward. And what was his reaction to the film and your portrayal of him? According to James, he really, really liked it. And he came to one of the screenings in South by Southwest. I had unfortunately already left. Uh, he came to a screening later in the week and watched it and did a Q&A after it. It was really, really fun. So... Um, yeah, there was that, uh, you know, it was really, really, uh, it was really, it was, it was gratifying to see him and James, like, kind of work a lot of stuff out. And have you ever done anything this strange in your life, on or offline, that you're willing to talk about? Oh, God, no. I mean, that, I, this, this level of, this level of lying and subterfuge, I, A, I couldn't sustain it, um, and B, I'd be uh, too much of a wuss to try it. <laughs> and on the other hand, has anyone ever done that sort of thing to you in the real world? No, I've never really been catfished now that I think of it. I mean, I've, I've had, you know, you, you get your, um, <clears throat> I've had my share of, you know, uh, uh, emails from Nairobi princes who want to give me <laughs> money, but, I've, but those just feel like bots. And what was it like interacting with Rachel Dratch as your kooky and kinky girlfriend in the movie? 
Well, I've known Rachel for years. We played boyfriend and girlfriend on uh, King of Queens, um, and I've always been such a fan of hers. She is a ace improviser and ace scene partner. So the scenes with her were, I mean, they were so easy because she's so funny and so relaxed and just knows how to get humor out of stuff. I mean, working with her has always been a treat. And did the two of you take the story to any strange places that was not written on the page? No, we pretty much kept to the um, script because, you know, I, I wanted that. If, if we were ad-libbing, then that's going to create a, a level of relaxation that I don't think Chuck has. I think Chuck is spinning nine plates at once, and he always has to be basically walking on needles the whole time. And as a comedian, what are your thoughts about cancel culture? You had problems when you were supporting your lifelong friend, Dave Chappelle. And has it affected or changed the way you perform as a comedian? I don't really have thoughts about it. I mean, I, I've seen this come and go. This is just another phase. There's always been, you know, times of evolution, uh, growth forward. And then in the growth forward, there's people that dig their feet in. And then everything just moves forward. So it's just it's something that I've seen so many times in different decades that I don't really have any thoughts about it. I'm sorry. <clears throat> And after what happened to Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle, do you fear in any way performing comedy? And has it changed you at all in where you go as a comedian or not? Not for me. And do you, what happened to Chris Rock, and do you worry about, no, that hasn't affected me at all. Yeah. And this is not the first time you've played real people. You portrayed Merv Griffin in Donald Trump's Art of the Deal and Boris Karloff in You Must Remember This. So what were the challenges of playing those two and the challenges of playing real people, as in I love my dad as well? That's right. Well, the Merv Griffin thing wasn't a challenge because it was such an insane satire. It was a short film for um, Funny or Die. Um, and then Boris Karloff, I was just reading a voiceover for the podcast, You Must Remember This. Um, I did play Chuck Colson on um, Gaslit, uh, which was just on um, Stars. So I did watch footage of Chuck and how he talked and how he sort of uh, comported himself. Uh, and I tried to, like, sort of <clears throat> capture a little bit of that. But for the most part, you have to figure out what is it about yourself that you can empathize with this other character with and then bring that out. Now, you've been described as playing trademark nerdy characters with literary references and verbose language, unquote. Do you agree or disagree? I mean, I don't know. That's someone else's quote. That That's whatever anyone – like, if that's what someone perceived, then that's what they perceived. I can't argue with what someone perceived. You can't argue with, like, well, if that's your opinion. If that's what you got from it, then that's what it is. So do you think it's true what they say, that comics are really clinically depressed? No. I think that's a very, very old cliche. I think everyone struggles with mental health on some level or another. I don't think there's any – Higher, I think there's a higher instance of depression in dentists than there are comedians. And any last word about I Love My Dad? I think you should definitely see it in a theater because the experience is so connective and amazing. When we saw it at South by Southwest and the way the audience is just cringing and there are scenes we got, that you got to watch through your eyes that are so funny, but also, oh my God, how is this happening? It's an amazing live theater experience. So definitely go see it in a movie theater. And is there anything else you're coming up in either on or off screen? I'll be in uh, Netflix's The Sandman premiering Friday. Oh. I have a Netflix special coming out September 20th. And I have a new creator-owned comic book coming out from Dark Horse. And that drops on Wednesday, August 24th. Oh, great. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, thank you, Patton Oswalt, for calling into our show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, and stay cool. Stay out of the heat. I'll tr You too. Stay cool. <laughs> Okay, bye. And I Love My Dad is out now in release. And now on Arts Express. This is Facebook's Metaverse and Marvel's Multiverse in an attempt to curate, not create, a community. Bro on the global film beat, Mr. Caruso goes to town. Corporate developer remade as California Common Man. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro channels Frank Capra's first of his Depression-era trilogy, the 1936 Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, in a reinvention of contemporary California rapacious land-grabbing. First, some scenes from Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, then Dennis Bro. The whole 
simple fortune goes to you. Twenty million dollars. Oh, I heard you all right. Twenty million, that's quite a lot, isn't it? Oh, it'll do in a pinch. Yes, indeed. I, I wonder why he left all that money to me. I don't need it. He writes poetry? So I said to my partner, let's quit this guy. He's nuts. Sure he's pixelated. Oh, yes, he's pixelated, all right. Oh, Eureka! Is Mary Dawson here? I'm Longfellow Deeds. Some I ever had a suit made on purpose. <laughs> if Miss Dawson here wasn't with me, I'd probably knock your heads together. Oh, I don't mind. Well, all right, maybe I will. <laughs> Hand me my pants. You have no pants, sir. You came home last night without them. Don't be silly, Walter. I couldn't run around the streets without any clothes. I'd be arrested. That's what the two policemen said, sir. Look, you don't have to say anything now. I'll, I'll wait till I hear from you tomorrow. Well, a guy has ever hit this town and you crucified him for a couple of stinking headlines. You've done your bit. Now stay out of his way. This is Bro on the Global Film Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Mr. Caruso Goes to Town, Corporate Developer Remade as California Common Man. Longfellow Deeds was his name, from the small town of Mandrake Falls in Vermont. Deeds takes his heart of America, generous sensibility, to the big city where he becomes the victim of all kinds of cynical manipulation from the media, the law, and wealthy hangers-on. In the first part of Frank Capra's Depression-era trilogy, Mr. Deeds goes to town. Deeds inherits $20 million and has to face a hearing where he can be declared insane for his scheme to donate all his money to buy farms for the homeless who he invites into his mansion, and who were forced to find food and bread lines in what was still the height of the Depression in 1936. In the current Los Angeles mayoral election, the wealthy developer of a number of Los Angeles projects that recall the innocence of small-town America, Rick Caruso, presents himself as a modern-day deeds, with all the homespun charm of Gary Cooper's character in Capra's film. In his campaign video, Caruso walks calmly in a mythical L.A. neighborhood with a long white picket fence behind him while he claims to be able to solve homelessness, curb crime, stop corruption in City Hall, and clean up Los Angeles. His voiceover describes him as from a family of immigrants, raised to put children and family first, and a lifelong builder and job creator who will work for a dollar a year and won't take a dime from special interests because my only special interest is Los Angeles. He positions himself as a sort of Donald Trump, but tempered by the warmth and kind-heartedness of a Mike Bloomberg. A kinder, gentler Trump, fit for the Democratic Party, though before this race he was a lifelong Republican, with the Trump can-do quality intact, but without the crudeness. One of the major issues in this campaign is homelessness, with the city full of makeshift homeless encampments, not only under its bridges, but now also on its sidewalks, as tents are raised on many city blocks. An article last summer in the Los Angeles Times, which described the circumstances, led three of those without shelter to the streets, detailed how in each case it was largely the unaffordability of housing, combined with lack of unemployment or retraining after losing a job, rather than deep psychological problems, that created this situation. These victims, who may then suffer psychological disturbances, instead recall the homeless who stormed Deeds' mansions and asked not for a handout but for land and an opportunity so that they may feed and shelter themselves. Before the pandemic hit, causing more unemployment, and now with rent moratoriums canceled, again increasing the problem, Los Angeles, according to the government agency Freddie Mac, was short 400,000 homes. This figure counts not only the homeless, a low estimate of which is 29,000, but with 41,000 with inadequate housing, but also multiple families sharing single homes and those living in spaces like garages and attics. Deeds is dubbed the Cinderella Man because he naively believes in people's goodness and that he can change an extremely cynical system set up to protect the powerful and keep wealth in the same hands. Caruso, on the other hand, is no Cinderella Man, far from naive. He is a card-carrying member of the Los Angeles elite, a wealthy real estate developer who outspent, according to her claim, his Democratic opponent, Karen Bass, by $40 million to $3 million, most of it his own money. 
He's on the board of trustees of that other major developer and landholder in the city, the University of Southern California. He is president of the Los Angeles Police Commission, a so-called oversight agency which has long whitewashed police conduct and maintained the thin blue line. In the wake of the Black Lives Matter protest, Caruso proposes increasing the police budget and hires to the maximum allowed. He's also a member of the powerful Board of Water and Power, which in a city adjacent to a desert, with water becoming more than ever a scarce commodity, holds the city's fate in its hands, as did the scheming and bloodthirsty Noah Cross in Chinatown, whose reason for his crimes was to control the future. Gary Cooper's soft-spoken man with a common touch is described in his own court hearings as obsessed with an insane desire to become a public benefactor. The cynics in New York see his embracing of small-town fellow feeling as corn-fed bohunk. In his building projects, Caruso has attempted to summon up his own kind of corn-fed bohunk in creating isolated villages that have the feeling of the past, remembered in tranquility, which in effect are branded upscale shopping paradises, which draw upper-middle-class audiences, and which generally reflect little of the diversity of the city. Since Los Angeles culture is so dominated by the automobile, one of the main characteristics of these utopian spaces is their walkability. The developments are not open to traffic and promote the idea that you can exit your car and supposedly for a block or two be surrounded by others pacing through a Los Angeles that, at least since the post-war automobile frenzy, never was. Caruso's gift to national architecture is to replace the more middle-class mall with the upper-middle-class, nostalgic, branded neighborhood. The grove adjacent to the farmer's market is typical. The area was once a real farm, complete with apple orchard, but is now transformed into a maze of high-end shops, with the apple orchard replaced by the apple store, and with various relics of a number of bygone eras. A trolley loops through the main artery, which contains, especially in the post-pandemic, two relics of American cultural gathering, a bookstore, Barnes & Noble's, the largest remaining bookstore chain, and a movie theater, AMC, the largest chain of theaters. This is Facebook's metaverse and Marvel's multiverse materialized as near-virtual nostalgic space. The Grove, a kind of fairy tale, has more visitors than Disneyland and includes in the center a conical monument with a nondescript sculpture of two angels at its top titled The Spirit of Los Angeles. This kind of sanitized version of the city couldn't contrast more to, for example, projects such as Judy Baca's mural History of a City in Struggle in the Great Wall on the more contested space of the border of L.A. and the San Fernando Valley. What the Grove cannot erase is the online attack on retail stores, as both F.A.L. Schwartz and Abercrombie & Fitch have both closed since the opening of the development. The Grove was also attacked as site of privilege in the Black Lives Matter protests. Another Caruso development, Palisades Village in the Pacific Palisades, located adjacent to Malibu and home to some of the city's wealthiest, was described by a Caruso architect, noting that a number of public meetings were held before the space was built as an attempt to curate, not create, a community. Residents, weary of the Caruso touch, did not want a theme park, though that is still the overall look of the place, with a small bookstore being replaced by an Amazon bookstore, with residents complaining that the commons, a public space akin to a New England green, kept shrinking as the meetings progressed and a recent visit revealing the site as a staging ground for a campaign to remove a councilman who championed affordable housing. Another project called The Commons, with its 40 high-end retail tenants, is set in Calabasas, 30 minutes from L.A., amid one of the wealthiest communities in California. Far from providing sources of income and housing for those most in need, as Longfellow Deeds is nearly labeled insane for doing Caruso, who claims he can solve the crisis by quickly shuttling the homeless into makeshift shelters, was described by his Democratic opponent Karen Bass, who bested him in the primary and who will now face him in a runoff in November, as someone who never built a single unit of affordable housing, and in that way helped create the housing crisis. That he will now step in and solve it is a bit like Purdue Pharma, largely responsible for the opioid crisis, claiming that it would then swing over into making a pill that would eliminate the addiction. More to the point and closer to Longfellow Deeds was progressive candidate Gina Viola's call for steering money away from the police toward both social services and for the city to use to seize empty properties, some of them already occupied by squatters, and convert them into housing for the homeless. Caruso's small-town hoaxes for a privileged class, while the rest of the city, just outside these tranquil villages, deteriorate 
marks him instead as part of the greedy power structure that attempted to use the law to prevent deeds from actual construction for the public good. Caruso's cynical campaign is the antithesis of Deed's populist cry of protest. Why do people get so much pleasure out of hurting each other? Why don't they try liking each other once in a while? And this is Bro on the Global Film Beat, Breaking Glass. And I'd like to remind you that this piece is the third article in a series based on Frank Capra's Depression-era trilogy. The first was Mr. Zelensky Goes to Washington, a parody of Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, about a media figure made into a folk hero. And the second was Meet Juan Guaido, based on Meet John Doe, about a politician plucked from obscurity and arbitrarily made ruler of his country. Thank you, Dennis Bro. Hello, everybody. This is Graham Nash from the Hollies and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Crosby, Nash and Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Yes, I've been in a lot of bands. I want to say aloha and fond wishes to everybody listening to Arts Express. Express Playhouse, original solo performance of Charlotte Perkins Gilman's I Wish I Were a Man, reprised from her original work penned in 1914. I won't forget when Peter Pan came to my house, took my hand, I said I was a boy, I'm glad he didn't check. I learned to fly, I learned to fight. I lived a whole life in one night We saved each other's lives on the pirate deck Hi, this is Jack Shalom. In our Arts Express Playhouse today, I'll be reading a short story by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And Gilman is best known for her novella, The Yellow Wallpaper, which is now the all-time best-selling book of the feminist press. But she also wrote hundreds of other short stories. The one I'll be reading today if I Were a Man, was written in 1914, before women even had the right to vote in the U.S., but it seems a whole lot more modern. And now the story, If I Were a Man, by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. If I Were a Man? That was what pretty little Molly Mathewson always said when Gerald would not do what she wanted him to which was seldom. That was what she said this bright morning with a stamp of her little high-heeled slipper just because he had made a fuss about that bill, the long one with the account rendered, which she had forgotten to give him the first time and been afraid to the second. And now he had taken it from the postman himself. If ever there was a true woman... It was Molly Mathewson, yet she was wishing heart and soul she was a man. And 
all of a sudden, she was. She was Gerald, walking down the path so erect and square-shouldered, in a hurry for his morning train as usual, and must be confessed in something of a temper. A man, really a man, with only enough subconscious memory of herself remaining to make her recognize the differences. At first there was a funny sense of size and weight and extra thickness. The feet and hands seemed strangely large, and her long, straight, free legs swung forward at a gait that made her feel as if on stilts. This presently passed, and in its place, growing all day, wherever she went, came a new and delightful feeling of being the right size. Her feet, his feet, she studied them carefully. Never before, since her early school days, had she felt such freedom and comfort as to feet. They were firm and solid on the ground when she walked. Quick, springy, safe, as when moved by an unrecognizable impulse, she had run after, caught, and swung aboard the car. Another impulse fished in a convenient pocket for change, instantly, automatically, bringing forth a nickel for the conductor and a penny for the newsboy. These pockets came as a revelation. Of course she had known they were there, had counted them, made fun of them, mended them, even envied them. But she never had dreamed of how it felt to have pockets. Then, being he, sitting there so easily and firmly with his money in his pockets, she wakened to his lifelong consciousness about money. Boyhood, its desires and dreams, ambitions, young manhood, working tremendously for the wherewithal to make a home for her. The present years, with all their net of cares and hopes and dangers, the present moment, when he needed every cent for special plans of great importance, and this bill, long overdue and demanding payment, meant an amount of inconvenience wholly unnecessary, if it had been given him when it first came. Women have no business sense, she found herself saying. And all that money just for hats, idiotic, useless, ugly things. With that, she began to see the hats of the women in the car as she had never seen hats before. The men's seemed normal, dignified, becoming, with enough variety for personal tastes and with distinction in style and in age, such as she had never noticed before. But the women's, with the eyes of a man and the brain of a man, she now perceived the hats of women. The massed, fluffed hair was at once attractive and foolish, and on that hair at every angle, in all colors, tipped, twisted, tortured into every crooked shape, made of any substance chance might offer, perched these formless objects. Never in all her life had she imagined that this idolized millinery could look to those who paid for it like the decorations of an insane monkey. And yet, when there came into the car a little woman, as foolish as any, but pretty and sweet-looking, up rose Gerald Mathewson and gave her his seat. And later, when there came in a handsome red-cheeked girl whose hat was wilder, more violent in color and eccentric in shape than any other, when she stood nearby 
and her soft curling plumes swept his cheek once and again. He felt a sense of sudden pleasure at the intimate tickling touch, and she, deep down within, felt such a wave of shame as might well drown a thousand hats forever. When he took his train, his seat in the smoking car, she had a new surprise. All about him were the other men, commuters too, and many of them friends of his. To her, they would have been distinguished as Mary Wade's husband, the man Bell Grant is engaged to, uh, that rich Mr. Shopworth, or that pleasant Mr. Beale, and they would all have lifted their hats to her, bowed, made polite conversation if near enough, especially Mr. Beale. Now came the feeling of open-eyed acquaintance, of knowing men as they were. The mere amount of this knowledge was a surprise to her, the whole background of talk from boyhood up, the gossip of barber shop and club, the conversation of morning and evening hours on trains, the knowledge of political affiliation, of business standing and prospects, of character, in a light she had never known before. They came and talked to Gerald, one and another. He seemed quite popular. And as they talked with this new memory and new understanding, an understanding which seemed to include all these men's minds, there poured in on the submerged consciousness beneath a new, a startling knowledge what men really think of women. Good average American men were there, married men for the most part, and, and happy, as happiness goes in general. But in the minds of each and all, there seemed to be a two-story department, quite apart from the rest of their ideas, a separate place where they kept their thoughts and feelings about women. In the upper half were the tenderest emotions, the most exquisite ideals, the sweetest memories, all lovely sentiments as to home and mother, all delicate, admiring adjectives. In the lower half, here, that buried consciousness woke to keen distress. They kept quite another assortment of ideas. Here, even in this clean-minded husband of hers, was the memory of stories told at men's dinners, of worse ones overheard in street or car, of, of base traditions coarse epithets, gross experiences, known, though not shared. And all these in the department woman, while in the rest of the mind, here was new knowledge indeed. The world opened before her, not the world she had been reared in, where home had covered all the map almost, and the rest had been far in or unexplored country, but the world as it was, man's world, as made, lived in, and seen by men. It was dizzying to see the houses that fled so fast across the car window in terms of builders' bills or of some technical insight into materials and methods, 
to see a passing village with lamentable knowledge of who owned it and of how its boss was rapidly aspiring in state power, or of how that kind of paving was a failure, to see shops not as mere exhibitions of desirable objects, but as business ventures, many mere sinking ships, some promising a profitable voyage. This new world bewildered her. She, as Gerald, had already forgotten about the bill over which she, as Molly, was still crying at home. Gerald was talking business with this man, talking politics with that, and now sympathizing with the carefully withheld troubles of a neighbor. Molly had always sympathized with the neighbor's wife before. She began to struggle violently with this large, dominant, masculine consciousness. She remembered with sudden clearness things she had read, lectures she had heard, and resented with increasing intensity the serene, masculine preoccupation with the male point of view. Mr. Miles, the little fussy man who lived on the other side of the street, was talking now. He had a large, complacent wife. Molly had never liked her much, but had always thought him rather nice. He was so punctilious in small courtesies. And here... He was talking to Gerald. <laughs> Such talk. Had to come in here, he said. Gave my seat to a dame who was bound to have it. There's nothing they won't get when they make up their minds to it, eh? <laughs> no fear, said the big man in the next seat. They haven't much mind to make up, you know, and if they do, they'll change it. The real danger, began the Reverend Alfred Smythe, the new Episcopal clergyman, a thin, nervous, tall man with a face several centuries behind the times, is that they will overstep the limits of their God-appointed sphere. <laughs> their natural limits ought to hold them, I think, said cheerful Dr. Jones. You can't get around physiology, I tell you. I've never seen any limits myself, not to what they want, anyhow, said Mr. Miles. Merely a rich husband and a fine house and no end of bonnets and dresses and the latest things in motors and a few diamonds and so on keeps us pretty busy. There was a tired gray man across the aisle. He had a very nice wife, always beautifully dressed, and three unmarried daughters, all so beautifully dressed. Molly knew them. She knew he worked hard, too, and she looked at him now a little anxiously. But he smiled cheerfully. Do you good, Miles, he said. What else would a man work for? A good woman is about the best thing on earth. And the bad one's the worst, that's sure, responded Miles. <laughs> She's a pretty weak sister viewed professionally, Dr. Jones averred with solemnity. And the Reverend Alfred Smythe added, She brought evil into the world. Gerald Matthewson sat up straight. Something was stirring in him which he did not recognize. Yet he could not resist. Seems to me we all talk like Noah, he suggested dryly. Or the ancient Hindu scriptures. <laughs> Women have their limitations, but so do we. God knows. Haven't we known girls in school and college just as smart as we were? They cannot play our games, coldly replied the clergyman. Gerald measured his meager proportions with a practiced eye. I never was particularly good at football myself, he modestly admitted, but I've known women who could outlast a man in all-around endurance, 
Besides, life isn't spent in athletics. It's time we woke up, pursued Gerald, still inwardly urged to unfamiliar speech. Women are pretty much people, seems to me. I know they dress like fools, but who's to blame for that? We invent all those idiotic hats of theirs and design their crazy fashions. And what's more, if a woman is courageous enough to wear common sense clothes and shoes, which of us wants to dance with her? Yes, we blame them for grafting on us, but are we willing to let our wives work? We are not. It hurts our pride, that's all. We are always criticizing them for making mercenary marriages, but what do we call a girl who marries a chump with no money? Just a poor fool, that's all, and they know it. As for Mother Eve, I wasn't there and can't deny the story, but I will say this. If she brought evil into the world, we men have had the lion's share of keeping it going ever since. How about that? They drew into the city, and all day long in his business, Gerald was vaguely conscious of new views, strange feelings, and the submerged Molly learned and learned. You've been listening to If I Were a Man by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, read by myself. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. When I was a boy, see that picture that was me, grass and shirt and dusty knees. And I know things have got to change. They got pills to sell, they got implants to put in, they got implants to remove. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.